Chapter fifty three, part one of The Cloister and the Hearth by Charles Reed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Denham. Nay, Richard, said Catherine at last, for heaven's sake, let not this one sorry wench set us all by the ears. Hath she not made ill blood enough already? "'In very deed she hath. "'Fear me not, good mother. "'Let her come and read the letter of the poor boy she hath, "'by devilish arts bewitched, and then let her go. "'Give me your words to show her no countenance "'beyond decent and constrained civility. "'Less we may not, being in our own house, "'and I will say no more.' "'On this understanding,' they waited the foe. She, for her part, prepared for the interview in a spirit little less hostile. When Denis brought word they would not come to her, but would receive her, her lip curled, and she bade him observe how in them every feeling, however small, was larger than the love for Gerard. "'Well,' said she, "'I have not that excuse, so why mimic the pretty burghers' pride, the pride of all unlettered folk. I will go to them for Gerard's sake. Oh, how I loathe them! Thus poor good-natured Denis was bringing into one house the materials of an explosion. Margaret made her toilet in the same spirit that a knight of her day dressed for battle he to parry blows, and she to parry glances, glances of contempt at her poverty, or of irony at her extravagance. Her kirtle was of English cloth, dark blue, and her farthingale and hose of the same material, but a glossy roan or claret colour. Not an inch of pretentious fur about her, but plain snowy linen wristbands, and curiously plaited linen from the bosom of the kirtle up to the commencement of the throat. It did not encircle her throat, but framed it, being square, not round. Her front hair still peeped in two waves, much after the fashion which Mary Queen of Scots revived a century later, but instead of the silver net, which would have ill become her present condition, the rest of her head was covered with a very small, tight-fitting hood of dark blue cloth, hemmed with silver. Her shoes were red, but the roan petticoat and hose prepared the spectator's mind for the shock, and they set off the arched instep and shapely foot. Beauty knew its business then as now. And with all this she kept her enemies waiting, though it was three by the dial. At last she started, attended by her he-comrade. And when they were half-way, she stopped and said thoughtfully, "'Dinnie!' "'Well, she, General?' "'I must go home,' piteously. "'What, have you left somewhat behind?' "'What?' "'My courage! Oh, oh, oh!' 
"'Nay, nay, be brave, she-general. "'I shall be with you. "'I but will keep close to me when I be there.' Denis promised, and she resumed her march, but gingerly. Meantime they were all assembled, and waiting for her with a strange mixture of feelings. Mortification, curiosity, panting affection, aversion to her who came to gratify those feelings, yet another curiosity to see what she was like, and what there was in her to bewitch Gerard, and make so much mischief. At last Denis came alone and whispered, "'The she-comrade is without.' "'Fetch her in,' said Eli. "'Now whisht, all of ye. "'None speak to her but I.' They all turned their eyes to the door, in dead silence. A little muttering was heard outside. Denis' rough organ, and a woman's soft and mellow voice— Presently that stopped, and then the door opened slowly, and Margaret Brandt, dressed as I have described, and somewhat pale, but calm and lovely, stood on the threshold, looking straight before her. They all rose but Kate, and remained mute and staring. "'Be seated, mistress,' said Eli gravely, and motioned to a seat that had been set apart for her. She inclined her head, and crossed the apartment, and in so doing her condition was very visible, not only in her shape, but in her languor. Cornelius and Sybrand hated her for it. Richard thought it spoiled her beauty. It softened the women somewhat. She took the letter out of her bosom, and kissed it as if she had been alone, then disposed herself to read it with the air of one who knew she was there for that single purpose. But as she began, she noticed they had seated her all by herself, like a leper. She looked at Denis, and putting her hand down by her side, made him a swift furtive motion to come by her. He went with an obedient start, as if she had cried, March, and stood at her shoulder like a sentinel. But this zealous manner of doing it revealed to the company that he had been ordered thither, and at that she coloured. And now she began to read her Gerard, their Gerard, to their eager ears, in a mellow, clear voice, so soft, so earnest, so thrilling, her very soul seemed to cling about each precious sound. It was a voice as of a woman's bosom, set speaking by heaven itself. I do not doubt, my Margaret, that long ere this shall meet thy beloved eyes, Dinny, my most dear friend, will have sought thee out, and told thee the manner of our unlooked-for and most tearful parting. Therefore I will e'en begin at that most doleful day. What befell him after, poor faithful soul, fain, fain would I hear, but may not. But I pray for him, day and night next after thee, dearest.' 
friend more staunch and loving had not David in Jonathan than I in him. Be good to him for poor Gerard's sake. At these words, which came quite unexpectedly to him, Denis leaned his head on Margaret's high chair and groaned aloud. She turned quickly as she sat and found his hand and pressed it. And so the sweetheart and the friend held hands while the sweetheart read. I went forward all dizzied, like one in an ill dream, and presently a gentleman came up with his servants all on horseback, and had liked to have rid o'er me. And he drew rein at the brow of the hill, and sent his armed men back to rob me. They robbed me civilly enough, and took my purse and the last copper, and rid gaily away. I wandered stupid on a friendless pauper. There was a general sigh, followed by an oath from Denis. Presently a strange dimness came o'er me. I lay down to sleep on the snow. T'was ill done, and with store of wolves hard by. Had I loved thee as thou dost deserve, I had shown more manhood. But, O oh, sweet love, the drowsiness that did crawl o'er me desolate and benumb me was more than nature. And so I slept, and but that God was better to us than I to thee or to myself. From that sleep I ne'er had waked. So all do say, I had slept an hour or two, as I suppose, but no more, when a hand did shake me rudely. I awoke to my troubles, and there stood a servant-girl in her holiday-suit. "'Are ye mad?' quoth she, in seeming collar, "'to sleep in snow and under wolves' nosen? "'Art weary o' life and not long-weaned? "'Come now,' said she, more kindly, "'get up like a good lad.' "'So I did rise up. "'Are ye rich or are ye poor?' "'But I stared at her as one amazed. "'Why, tis easy of reply,' quoth she, "'are ye rich or are ye poor?' Then I gave a great loud cry, that she did start back. "'Am I rich, or am I poor? Had ye asked me an hour agone, I had said I am rich, but now I am so poor, as sure earth beareth on her bosom none poorer. An hour agone I was rich in a friend, rich in money, rich in hope, and spirits of youth, but now the bastard of Burgundy hath taken my friend.' and another gentleman my purse, and I can neither go forward to Rome, nor back to her I left in Holland. I am the poorest of the poor. Alack, said the wench, natheless, an ye had been rich, ye might have lain down again in the snow for any use I had for ye. And then I trow ye had soon fared out of this world as bare as ye came into it but being poor, you are our man, so come with me. Then I went, because she bade me, and because I recked not now whither I went. And she took me to a fine house hard by, and into a noble dining-hall hung with black, and there was set a table with many dishes, and but one plate and one chair. "'Fall to,' said she, in a whisper. "'What, alone?' said I. 
alone? And which of us think ye would eat out of the same dish with ye? Are we robbers of the dead?' Then she speared where I was born. "'A turgoo,' said I, says she, "'and when a gentleman dies in that country, serve they not the dead man's dinner up as usual, till he be in the ground, and set some poor man to it?' I told her nay. She blushed for us then. Here they were better Christians. So I behoved to sit down. But small was my heart for meat. Then this kind lass sat by me, and poured me out wine, and tasting it, it cut me to the heart. Denis was not there to drink with me. He doth so love good wine, and women, good, bad, or indifferent. The rich, strong wine curled round my sick heart, and that day first I did seem to glimpse why folk in trouble run to drink so. She made me eat of every dish. "'Twas unlucky to pass one. Nought was here but her master's daily dinner. "'He had a good stomach, then,' said I. "'Aye, lad, and a good heart. Leastways, so we all say now he is dead. But being alive, no word on't e'er heard I.' So I did eat as a bird, nibbling of every dish. And she, hearing me sigh, and seeing me like to choke at the food, took pity, and bade me be of good cheer. I should sup and lie there that night. And she went to the hind, and he gave me a right good bed. And I told them all, and asked him, would the law give me back my purse? Law, quoth he, law there was none for the poor in Burgundy. Why, twas the cousin of the lady of the manor, he that had robbed me. He knew the wild spark. The matter must be judged before the lady, and she was quite young, and far more like to hang me for slandering her cousin, and a gentleman, and a handsome man, than to make him give me back my own. Inside the liberties of a town a poor man might now and then see the face of justice, but out among the grand seigneurs and dames never. So I said, I'll sit down robbed, rather than seek justice and find gallows, they were almost kind to me next day, and the girl proffered me some money from her small wage to help me towards Rhine. "'Oh, then, he is coming home! He is coming home!' shouted Denis, interrupting the reader. She shook her head gently at him by way of reproof. "'I beg pardon, all the company,' he said stiffly. "'Twas a sore temptation,' but being a servant my stomach rose against it. "'Nay, nay,' said I. She told me I was wrong. "'Twas pride out of place. Poor folk should help one another, or who on earth would?' I said, "'If I could do aught in return, twere well. But for a free gift, nay, I was overmuch beholden already. Should I write a letter for her?' "'Nay, he is in the house at present,' said she. "'Should I draw her picture, and so earn my money?' "'What, can ye?' said she. "'I told her I could try, and her habit could well become a picture. "'So she was a gog to be limbed, and give it her lad. "'And I set her to stand in a good light, 
and soon made sketches too, whereof I sent thee one, coloured at odd hours. The other I did most hastily, and with little conscience daub, for which may heaven forgive me, but time was short. They, poor things, knew no better, and were most proud and joyous, and both kissing me after their country fashion, "'Twas the hind that was her sweetheart, they did bid me Godspeed, and I towards Rhine. Margaret paused there, and gave Denis the coloured drawing to hand round. It was eagerly examined by the females on account of the costume, which differed in some respects from that of the Dutch domestic. The hair was in a tight linen bag, a yellow half-kerchief, crossed her head from ear to ear, but threw out a rectangular point that descended the centre of her forehead, and it met in two more points above her bosom. She wore a red kirtle with long sleeves, kilted very high in front, and showing a green farthingale and a great red leather purse hanging down over it, red stockings, yellow leathern shoes ahead of her age, for they were low-quartered and square-toed, secured by a strap buckling over the instep, which was not uncommon, and was perhaps the rude germ of the diamond buckle to come. Margaret continued, But, oh, how I missed my Denis at every step! Often I sat down on the road and groaned, and in the afternoon it chanced that I did so set me down where two roads met, and with heavy head in hand, and heavy heart, did think of thee, my poor sweetheart, and of my lost friend, and of the little house at Tegu, where they all loved me once, though now it is turned to hate. Catherine, alas, that he will think so, Eli, wished wife. And I did sigh aloud and often, and me sighing so, one came carolling like a bird adown t'other road. Ay, chirp and chirp, cried I bitterly. Thou hast not lost, sweetheart and friend, thy father's hearth, thy mother's smile, and every penny in the world. And at last he did so carol, and carol I jumped up in ire to get away from his most jarring mirth. But ere I lied from it, I looked down the path to see what could make a man so light-hearted in this weary world, and, lo, the songster was a hump-backed cripple, with a bloody bandage o'er his eye, and both legs gone at the knee. He-he-he-he-he! <laughs> went Sybrand, laughing and cackling. Margaret's eyes flashed. She began to fold the letter up. "'Nay, lass,' said Eli, "'heed him not!' Thou unmannerly cur, off it but again, and I put thee to the door. Why, what was there to jibe at, Sybrand? remonstrated Catherine more mildly. Is not our Kate afflicted? And is she not the most content of us all, and singeth like a merle at times between her pains? But I am as bad as thou— Prithee read on, lass, and stop our gabble with somewhat worth the hearkening. Then said I, May this thing be, and I took myself to task. Gerard, son of Eli, 
dost thou well to bemoan thy lot thou hast youth and health and here comes the wreck of nature on crutches praising god's goodness with singing like a mavis catherine there you see eli wished dame wished and whenever he saw me he left carolling and presently hobbled up and chanted charity for love of heaven sweet master charity with a whine as piteous as wind at keyhole alack poor soul said i charity is in my heart but not my purse i am poor as thou then he believed me none and to melt me undid his sleeve and showed a sore wound on his arm and said he poor cripple though i be i am like to lose this eye to boot look else i saw and groaned for him and to excuse myself let him what how i had been robbed of my last copper thereat he left whining all in a moment and said in a big manly voice then i'll e'en take a rest here youngster pull thou this strap nay fear not i pulled and down came a stout pair of legs out of his back and half his hump had melted away and the wound in his eye no deeper than the bandage oh ejaculated margaret's hearers in a body whereat seeing me astounded he laughed in my face and told me i was not worth gulling and offered me his protection my face was prophetic he said of what said i marry said he that its owner will starve in this thievish land travel teaches e'en the young wisdom time was i had turned and fled this impostor as a pestilence but now i listened patiently to pick up crumbs of counsel and well i did for nature and his adventurous life had crammed the poor knave with shrewdness and knowledge of the homelier sort a child was i beside him when he had turned me inside out said he didst well to leave france and make for germany but think not of holland again nay on to augsburg and nuremberg the paradise of craftsmen thence to venice an thou wilt but thou wilt never bide in italy nor any other land having once tasted the great german cities why there is but one honest country in europe and that is germany and since thou art honest and since i am a vagabone germany was made for us twain i bade him make that good how might one country fit true men and knaves why thou novice said he because in an honest land are fewer knaves to bite the honest man and many honest men for the knave to bite i was in luck being honest to have fallen in with a friendly sharp be my pal said he i go to nuremberg we will reach it with full pouches i'll learn ye the cour de bois and the cour de jatte and how to mourn and chaunt and patter and to raise swellings and paint sores and ulcers on thy body would take in the devil i told him shivering i'd liever die than shame myself and my folk so eli good lad good lad why what shame was it for such as i to turn beggar 
beggary was an ancient and most honourable mystery. What did holy monks and bishops and kings when they would win heaven's smile? Why, wash the feet of beggars, those favourites of the saints. The saints were no fools, he told me. Then he did put out his foot. Look at that. That was washed by the greatest king alive, Louis of France, the last holy Thursday that was, and the next day, Friday, clapped in the stocks by the warden of a petty hamlet. So I told him my foot should walk between such high honour and such low disgrace, on the same path of honesty, please God. Well, then, since I had not spirit to beg, he would indulge my perversity, and I should work under him, he be the head, I the fingers, and with that he set himself up like a judge on a heap of dust by the roadside, and questioned me strictly what I could do. I began to say I was strong and willing. Bah! said he, so is an ox. Say, what canst do that Sir Ox cannot? I could write. I had won a prize for it. Canst write as fast as the printers? quoth he, jeering. What else? I could paint. That was better. I was like to tear my hair to hear him say so, and me going to Rome to write. I could twang the psaltery a bit. That was well. Could I tell stories? I by the score. Then, said he, I hire you from this moment. What to do, said I. Not crooked, Sir Kander, said he. I will feed thee all the way, and find thee work, and take half thine earnings no more. Agreed, said I, and gave my hand on it. Now, servant, said he, we will dine. But ye need not stand behind my chair for two good reasons. First I have got no chair, and next good fellowship likes me better than state. And out of his wallet he brought flesh, fowl, and pastry, a good dozen of spices lapped in flax paper, and wine fit for a king. Ne'er feasted I better than out of this beggar's wallet, now my master. When we had well eaten, I was for going on. But, said he, servants should not drive their masters too hard, especially after feeding, for then the body is for repose, and the mind turns to contemplation. And he lay on his back, gazing calmly at the sky, and presently wondered whether there were any beggars up there. I told him I knew but of one, called Lazarus. "'Could he do the cul de jatte better than I?' said he, and looked quite jealous-like. I told him nay. Lazarus was honest, though a beggar, and fed daily of the crumbs fallen from a rich man's table, and the dogs licked his sores. "'Servant,' quoth he, "'I spy a foul fault in thee. Thou liest without discretion. Now the end of lying being to gull, this is no better than fumbling with the devil's tail. I pray heaven thou mayst prove to paint better than thou cuttest wids, or I am done out of a dinner. No beggar eats crumbs, but only the fat of the land.' 
and dogs lick not a beggar's sores, being made with spearwort or rat's bane or biting acids, from which all dogs and even pigs abhor. My sores are made after my proper receipt, but no dog would lick in them twice. I have made a scurvy bargain. Art a cozening knave, I doubt, as well as a nincompoop. I deigned no reply to this bundle of lies, which did accuse heavenly truth of falsehood for not being in a tale with him. He rose, and we took the road, and presently we came to a place where were two little wayside inns, scarce a furlong apart. "'Halt!' said my master. "'Their armories are so faded, all the better. Go thou in, shun the master, board the wife.' and flatter her in sky-high, all but the armories, and offer to colour them dirt-cheap. So I went in, and told the wife I was a painter, and would revive her armories cheap. But she sent me away with a rebuff. I to my master. He groaned. Ye are all fingers and no tongue, said he. I have made a scurvy bargain. Come and hear me, patter and flatter. Between the two inns was a high hedge. He goes behind it a minute, and comes out a decent tradesman. We went on to the other inn, and then I heard him praise it so fulsome as the very wife did blush. But, says he, there is one little, little fault. Your armories are dull and faded. Say but the word, and for a silver franc, my apprentice here, the cunningest heir I had, shall make them bright as ever. Whilst she hesitated, the rogue told her he had done it to a little inn hard by, and now the inn's face was like the starry firmament. "'Did you hear that, my man?' cries she. "'The three frogs have been and painted up their armories. Shall the four hedgehogs be outshone by them?' So I painted, and my master stood by like a lord, advising me how to do, and winking to me to heed him none, and I got a silver franc. And he took me back to the three frogs, and on the way put me on a beard, and disguised me, and flattered the three frogs, and told them how he had adorned the four hedgehogs, and into the net jumped the three poor simple frogs and I earned another silver franc. Then we went on, and he found his crutches, and sent me forward, and showed his cicatrices d'empreinte, as he called them, and all his infirmities at the four hedgehogs, and got both food and money. "'Come, share and share,' quoth he. So I gave him one franc. "'I have made a good bargain,' said he. "'Art a master limner, but takes too much time.' So I let him know that in matters of honest craft things could not be done quick and well. "'Then do them quick,' quoth he. And he told me my name was Montbec, and I might call him Cul de Jacques, because that was his lay at our first meeting. And at the next town my master, Cul de Jacques, bought me a psaltery, and set himself again by the roadside in state, like him that erst judged Marsyas and Apollo, piping for vain glory. 
so I played a strain. "'Indifferent well, harmonious bonbec,' said he haughtily. "'Now tune thy pipes.' So I did sing a sweet strain the monks taught me, and singing it reminded poor Bonbec, Gerard Erst, of his young days and home, and brought the water to my een. But looking up, my master's visage was as the face of a little boy whipped soundly, or sipping foulest medicine. "'Zoon, stop that bellyache blether,' quoth he, "'that will ne'er while a stiver out a peasant's purses, "'twill but sour the nurse's milk, "'and gar the kind jump into rivers to be out of earshot on't. "'What false knave did I buy thee a fine new psaltery "'to be minded o' my latter end withal? "'Hearken, these be the songs that glad the heart "'and fill the minstrel's purse.' "'And he sung so blasphemous a stave, "'and eke so obscene.' as I drew away from him a space that the lightning might not spoil the new psaltery. However, none came, being winter, and then I said, Master, the Lord is debonair. Held I the thunder, yon ribaldry had been thy last, thou foul-mouthed wretch. Why, Bonbeck, what is to you? quoth he. I have made an ill bargain. O oh, perverse heart that turneth from doctrine! So I bade him keep his breath to cool his broth. Ne'er would I shame my folk with singing ribald songs. Then, says he sulkily, the first fire we light by the wayside, clap thou on the music-box, so twill make our pot boil for the nonce. But with your good people let us peek and pine, cut tristful mugs and mural and wine, thorough our nose and chaunts divine, never, never, never. Ye might as well go through Lorraine crying, Mullygrubs, Mullygrubs, who'll buy my Mullygrubs? So we fared on, bad friends. But I took a thought, and prayed him hum me one of his naughty ditties again. Then he brightened, and broke forth into ribaldry like a nightingale. Finger in ears stuffed I. No words, naught but the bare melody. For, O oh, Margaret, note the sly malice of the evil one, still to the scurviest matter he wedded the tunablest ditties. Catherine, that is true as holy writ. Sybrant, how know you that, mother? Cornelius, he, he, he. Eli, whisht, ye uneasy whites, and let me hear the boy. He is wiser than ye, wiser than his years. What tomfoolery is this? said he. Yet he yielded to me, and soon I garnered three of his melodies, but I would not let Cul de Chat wot the thing I meditated. Show not fools nor bairns unfinished work, saith the byword and by this time twas night, and a little town at hand, where we went each to his inn. For my master would not yield to put off his rags and other sores till morning, nor I to enter an inn with a tatterdemalion. So we were to meet on the road at peep of day, and indeed we still lodged apart, meeting at morn, and parting at eve, outside each town we lay at. 
and waking at midnight and cogitating, good thoughts came down to me, and sudden my heart was enlightened. I called to mind that my Margaret had withstood the taking of the burgomaster's purse. "'Tis theft,' said you, "'disguise it how you will. But I must be wiser than my betters, and now that which I had as good as stolen, others had stolen from me. As it came, so it was gone. Then I said, "'Heaven is not cruel but just,' and I vowed a vow to repay our burgomaster every shilling and I could. And I went forth in the morning sad but hopeful. I felt lighter for the purse being gone. My master was at the gate, becrutched. I told him I'd liever have seen him in another guise. "'Beggars must not be choosers,' said he. However, soon he bade me untruss him, for he felt sadly. His head swam. I told him forcefully to deform nature thus could scarce be wholesome. He answered none, but looked scared and hand on head. By and by he gave a groan, and rolled on the ground like a ball, and writhed sore. I was scared, and wist not what to do, but went to lift him. But his trouble rose higher and higher, he gnashed his teeth fearfully, and the foam did fly from his lips, and presently his body bended itself like a bow, and jerked and bounded many times into the air. I exorcised him. It but made him worse. There was water in a ditch hard by, not very clear, but the poor creature struggling between life and death, I filled my hat with all, and came flying to souse him. Then my lord laughed in my face, "'Come, Bonbeck, by thy white gills, I have not forgotten my trade!' I stood with watery hat in hand, glaring, "'Could this be feigning?' "'What else?' said he. "'Why, a real fit is the sorriest thing, but a stroke with a feather compared with mine. Art still betters nature.' "'But look, ye now blood trickleth from your nose,' said I. Ay, ay, pricked my nostrils with a straw. But ye foamed at the lips. Oh, a little soap makes a mickle foam. And he drew out a morsel like a bean from his mouth. Thank thy stars, Bombeck, says he, for leading thee to a worthy master. Each day his lesson. Tomorrow we will study the cul de bois and other branches. Today own me prince of demoniacs and indeed of all good fellows. Then, being puffed up, he forgot yesterday's grudge, and discoursed me freely of beggars, and gave me, who eftsoons thought a beggar was a beggar, and there an end, the names and qualities of full thirty sorts of masterful and crafty mendicants in France and Germany and England, his three provinces, for so the poor proud knave eclept those kingdoms three, where in his throne it was the stocks I ween. And outside the next village one had gone to dinner, and left his wheelbarrow. So, says he, I'll tie myself in a knot, and shalt wheel me through, and what with my cripple dumb, and thy piety, 
a wheeling of thy poor old dad. We'll bleed the bumpkins of a Dutch salty. I did refuse. I would work for him, but no hand would have in begging. And wheeling an asker in a barrow, is that not work? said he. Then fling yon muckle stone into boot. Stay, I'll soil it a bit, and swear it is the chip of the holy sepulchre, and you wheeled us both from Jerusalem. Said I, wheeling a pair of lies, one stony, one fleshy, may be work and hard work, but honest work tis not. Tis fumbling with his tail you won't of. And, said I, master, next time you go to tempt me to knavery, speak not to me of my poor old dad. Said I, you have minded me of my real father's face, the truest man in Holland. He and I are ill friends now, worse luck, but though I offend him, shame him, I never will. Dear Margaret, with this knave saying, your poor old dad, it had gone to my heart like a knife. "'Tis well,' said my master gloomily. "'I have made a bad bargain.' Presently he halts, and eyes a tree by the wayside. "'Go spell me! What is writ on yon tree?' So I went, and there was naught but a long square drawn in outline. I told him so. "'So much for thy monkish law,' quoth he a little farther, and he sent me to read a wall. There was naught, but a circle scratched on the stone with a point of nail or knife, and in the circle two dots. I said so. Then said he, Bonbeck, that square was a warning. Some good truand left it, that came through this village faring west. That means dangerous. The circle with the two dots was writ by another of our brotherhood and it signifies as how the writer soit Roland Trapu, soit Triboulet, soit Catancule de Bois, or what not, was becked for asking here, and lay two months in Starabin. Then he broke forth, Talk of your little snivelling books that go in pouch. Three books have I, France, England, and Germany, and they are writ all over in one tongue, that my brethren of all countries understand, and that is what I call learning. So sith here they whip sores and imprison infirmities, I to my tiring room. And he popped behind the hedge, and came back worshipful. We passed through the village, and I sat me down on the stocks, and even the barber's apprentice whets his razor on a block, so I did flesh my psaltery on this village, fearing great cities. I tuned it, and coursed up and down the wires nimbly with my two wooden strikers, and then chanted loud and clear as I had heard the minstrels of the country. Qui veut ouir, qui veut savoir? Some trash, I mind not what. And soon the villagers, male and female, thronged about me. Thereat I left singing, and recited them, to the psaltery, a short but right merry tale out of the lives of the saints, which it is my handbook of pleasant figments, and this ended instantly struck up, and whistled one of Culdejat's devil's ditties, and played it on the psaltery to boot. 
Thou knowest heaven hath bestowed on me a rare whistle, both for compass and tune, and with me whistling bright and full this sprightly air, and making the wires slow when the tune did gallop, and tripping when the tune did amble, or I did stop and shake on one note like a lark of the air, they were like to eat me, but looking round, lo, my master had given way to his itch, and there was his hat on the ground, and copper pouring in. I deemed it cruel to whistle the bread out of poverty's pouch, so broke off and away, yet could not get clear so swift, but both men and women did slobber me sore, and smelled all of garlic. There, master, said I, I call that cleaving the devil in twain, and keeping his white half. Said he, Bonbeck, I have made a good bargain. Then he bade me stay where I was, while he went to the Holy Land. I stayed, and he leaped the churchyard dyke, and the sexton was digging a grave, and my master chaffered with him, and came back with a knuckle-bone. But why he clept at churchyard holy land, that I learned not then, but after dinner. I was colouring the armories of a little inn, and he sat by me most peaceable, a-cutting and filing, and polishing bones sedately. So I speared was not honest work sweet. "'As rain-water,' said he, mocking. "'What was he making? A pair of bones to play on with thee.' and with the refuse, a St. Anthony's thumb, and a St. Martin's little finger for the devout. The vagabone! And now, sweet Margaret, thou seest our manner of life faring rhineward. I, with the two arts I had least prized or counted on for bread, was welcome everywhere. Too poor now to fear robbers, yet able to keep both master and man on the road for at night I often made a portraiture of the innkeeper or his dame, and so went richer from an inn, for which it is the lot of few. But my master despised this even way of life. "'I love ups and downs,' said he, and certes he lacked them not. One day he would gather more than I in three, another, to hear his tale, it had rained kicks all day in lieu of salties, and that is pennies. Yet even then, at heart, he despised me for a poor mechanical soul, and scorned my arts, extolling his own, the art of feigning. Natheless, at odd times, he was ill at his ease. Going through the town of X, we came upon a beggar walking, fast by one hand, to a cart-tail, and the hangman a-lashing his bare bloody back. He, stout knave, so whipped, did not a jot relent, but I did wince at every stroke, and my master hung his head. "'Soon or late, Bonbeck,' quoth he, "'soon or late.' I, seeing his haggard face, knew what he meaned, and at a town whose name hath slipped me, but twas on a fair river, as we came to the foot of the bridge, he halted and shuddered. "'Why, what is the coil?' said I. "'Oh, blind!' said he. "'They are justifying there.' So naught would serve him but take a boat, and cross the river by water. 
But twas out of the frying-pan, as the word goeth, for the boatman had scarce told us the matter, and that it was a man and a woman for stealing glazed windows out of housen, and that the man was hanged at daybreak, and the queen to be drowned, when, lo, they did fling her off the bridge, and fell in the water not far from us. And, oh, Margaret, the deadly splash, it ringeth in my ears even now, but worse was coming, for though tied, she came up and cried, Help! Help! And I, forgetting all, and hearing a woman's voice cry, Help! was for leaping in to save her, and had surely done it, but the boatman and Cul de Jatte clung round me, and in a moment the bureau's man, that waited in a boat, came and entangled his hooked pole in her long hair, and so thrust her down and ended her. Oh, if the saints answered so, our cries for help! And poor Cul de Jatte groaned, and I sat sobbing, and beat my breast, and cried, of what hath God made men's hearts? The reader stopped, and the tears trickled down her cheeks. Gerard, crying in Lorraine, made her cry at Rotterdam. The leagues were no more to her heart than the breadth of a room. End of chapter 53, part 1 Recording by Tom Denham.